Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, listeners of the Mad Scientist podcast. I am your host, Chris Cogswell. Joined here by my pod brother, TJ Coonhan from the Pints and Puzzles podcast for a very special episode, a Thanksgiving episode on nanotechnology and other random things. How's it going, TJ? Good, man. How are you? It's nice to talk to you. Going super well. Yeah, it is always nice to talk to you as well, man. We, uh, I like these episodes because it means I get to drink beer uh, more than I normally would on a weekend or a weeknight, I should say. Um, well, we I always time them and we don't have work or, well, you don't have work yeah, the next day. Yeah, that's true. We, tr- we try not to, yeah. <laughs> and, or you know when my like, wife's off work the next day. <laughs> yeah, it's, well, it's perfect. You know what's funny is actually, uh, I, I, you just it just reminded me of the first Thanksgiving that my mom and me both went over to Katie's house for Thanksgiving. I got blackout drunk the night before. Oh. <laughs> at a, because uh, my friend, my, my best friend... Um, from growing up is uh, my buddy Richie and his, you know, his parents live across the street from me. So when I got home, he was hanging out there. So we all went out me, him and his parents and his parents evidently hang out with like a bunch of really awesome party people. <laughs> and I just remember his mom was like, Chris, do these shots. And then I did. And then I, I guess I fell asleep at Richie's uh, in his basement. And so in the morning, I woke up when Katie finally had the wherewithal to call Richie's house and was like, where is Chris? Oh, God. It was hilarious. It was hell. It was horrible. My mom was like, you smell like liquor. (laughs) (laughs) And I did. And that was probably. uh, (laughs) And I did. (laughs) I think that I think that was the last time I I actually like really like went hard out going to drink because the next morning I felt terrible. Well, I learned the hard way that there's a fine line between (laughs) relaxed on a podcast drinking and slurring because that's the first thing that goes for me, unfortunately, which is really great. Great. When you're a podcaster that does beer reviews. (laughs) So, yeah, this is delicious. (laughs) I'm just like, yeah, hey. I like beer. <laughs> <laughs> so. All right, let's let's uh let's get into this damn yeah. episode. What man. are we doing? It's gonna be good. Welcome to the Mad Scientist Podcast, episode 32, Nanotechnology. <laughs> so All right, so this episode I thought we would start off. So we're kind of doing something interesting, listeners, here. We're going to do, because usually when we record these mashups, we try to get kind of, I guess, like joint exposure or something where uh, we both release it on our feeds. This time we're doing something a little different. We're going to do the intro to each episode. It's going to be different. So like the first, say, hour of this episode will be different than uh, the episode that's going to show up on TJ's feed. And then, uh, so th- so basically, we're, we are releasing two different episodes. So check out both. Uh, go check out Pines and Puzzles feed. 
Yeah. So too, yeah. Too, so too think, many episodes with the same ending, you know? Yeah, I think that's a cool I think it's a cool <laughs> idea. I mean, you know, get give people a taste of both shows kind of. Well the wonderful thing is that we both have a lot of listeners that love both our shows now, right? So Yeah, we totally do, and which is awesome. Which I mean, is really cool. You know, yeah, that's one that's one thing quick before we get too deep into this science crap. Um, you know, uh, just got to give a huge shout out to everyone who's listened to the show and supported it so far. Um, you know, TJ yourself, I got to give a shout out to you. Uh, you gave oh, me my first mic. You do that sounds too amazing. Much. <laughs> it sounds great. You're, you're a great guy and, uh, you got a great show and, you know, I'm, I'm thankful for everyone who listens, everyone that's helped us out so far, every podcast that supported us, everyone on dark myths, uh, Scott and force and astonishing legends in particular, um, you know, been phenomenal. So it's, you know, it's been awesome. It's yeah. Really cool. I have the same thing and I'll get into that mushy stuff probably on mine, even though I didn't want to, um, Wonderful. But, now, I for, but, now I forced your hand. Yeah, but exactly. <laughs> now I'm the jerk if I don't do it. Um, uh, <laughs> but yeah, so I have all that same stuff, uh, as far as, you know, the, the unsolved mysteries or weird shit category, depending on how you want to categorize it. Um, <laughs> but then also my true crime people too, as well. I got to, I got to show love for them too, which I know you're starting to dip your toes over there too. So, oh yeah, we're trying. Um, yeah, man. Yeah, you're doing real well so far. Spoiler alert, guys. Spoiler <laughs> alert. It's gonna be weird. Weird, but right. cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's gonna be good. Okay, sorry, right. I'm, right. cutting, I'm cutting. I'm cutting TV <laughs> off here. Let's let's get into this episode. So, nanotechnology is. What so the the reason I wanted to have TG on here for this episode, besides the fact that I just kind of enjoy talking to him, is that I think it'd be really good, just like what we did with Marie when we talked about thermodynamics. I think it'd be really cool. I think it's gonna be really instructive to have someone who doesn't know about this stuff ask me questions about it, right? As I'm telling the story of this science, because first off, otherwise the science can get too boring. I love science, but not everyone loves science. So it can be a little bit droning. And then at the same time, you know, there are questions that TJ is going to think to ask that I would never think to answer, you know, without his uh, without his kind of urging, I suppose. Every, so, yeah, the, kind of the everyman perspective on the science. You know? Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? And it's There's, not boring, but some but you get excited about the science, I, like which which we all love. That's why we listen to the show. But yeah, I mean, I would say there's occasions where probably people get a little lost here and there, you know? Oh, so, absolutely. But that's no, okay, because totally. you're like, you know, you're the fucking PhD in science. So, you know, in this stuff. So we expect <laughs> it from you. Well, that's very, that's phenomenal. All but right. That, so that said, I will say you're also one of the best teachers I've ever had on any of this stuff compared to any of my high school science classes. So, well, we try, you know. we try over here teaching. So, Nanotechnology, I kind of want to give a, a general primer first on the whole field, you know, and just kind of go over the history of it. So <laughs> nanotechnology, first off, what does nano, what does nano in nanotechnology mean? Nano corresponds to a length scale. So, you know, you can have things that are like a centimeter, a decimeter, a millimeter. Well, a nanometer is one of those types of lengths. And so you can think... If uh, the the analogy I always like to use that I, I had heard a while ago, and I hope I hope it's accurate. I believe it is uh, based on my own experience. But in general, we can say that if you if your height was a, was on a nanometer scale, then atoms would appear to be things like baseballs and basketballs. OK, so we're talking really small length scales here. And. The original idea behind nanotech was really first proposed 
seriously by Richard Feynman in the early, like late fifties, early sixties, he wrote a book. And in the book, he supposed that, you know, wouldn't it be cool if we could control chemistry and physics at the atomic scale? So as opposed to doing things where we mix a whole bunch of random stuff together and hope that we get out of that mixing what we want, wouldn't it be awesome if we could literally put two atoms together like Lego bricks? Okay. Right? So if you wanted to build a salt crystal, you would just put sodium and chlorine together and get a single molecule of salt. Makes sense. Right? That's kind, That was kind of the idea. Now, it's been... Uh, 70 years or so since that first idea was proposed and we're, we're a little bit closer, but ultimately we're still aside from some really specific instances, we're still at the level where we're finding interesting ways to get nanoscale changes at some, some way that we can do that at the macro scale. Right? So in other words, there's, Kind of two general ways to think about how to build. So there's two general ways to think about how to build a nanomaterial. And we're going to get into them a little bit, a little bit more as we uh, talk more about those techniques. But there's a top-down approach, which would be like you start with a big bulk of material at the, at the normal scale, even like a piece of sand or something, say. And then you chip away or you perform chemistry to break off pieces that have uh, features. So in other words, uh, pores, so like a, like a hole or a tunnel or a chemical site, or they're chemically active at the nanoscale. Okay. And then there is the bottom up approach. And that's more what like Feynman described where it's like, we put atoms together like Lego pieces. Gotcha. So it's and like archeology span versus Legos. Yeah, almost. yeah, well, yeah, almost almost like sculpture, sculpture. versus Legos. Okay. Yeah, sculpture versus Legos is probably a better analogy, right? And even sculpture is like giving it a little bit too much credit. Um it's more like it is it is really more like you you have a big like a mountain of material and you try to sculpt out a shape you kind of want by applying explosives. Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? And just like trying with successive steps to break down to get to a piece that you want. Hey, it worked with Mount, Mount Rushmore, you know? It did work <laughs> with Mount Rushmore. It's, it's like, it's kind of interesting, right? And so, uh, so the first, the first nanomaterials, so why are nanomaterials important and why did we start looking for them, right? Now, obviously the ability to change things at the atomic scale would be really interesting. I mean, just imagine for instance, if we could build a robot the size of a cancer cell, right? Which a cell is, um, a cell is thousands of times bigger than a single atom, right? Right. If we could build something the size of a cell, even that was a robot or controllable by human by at the bulk scale, like a doctor or something could control, then we could, for instance, potentially, um, send that thing to the cancer cell to break it apart physically. Okay. Right. So as opposed to say using radiation to kill cancer cells, we apply a, a salve full of nano robots and they make their way to the cancer cell and they break down just that cell. 
Okay. And that's right? how I think of nanotech too for my from <clears throat> medical, yeah. Yeah, previous life background was in pharma, so it was so pharmaceutical company. So it makes sense that it's all kind of the medical side. Of course there's the sci-fi side of that too as well, which is, you know, they're all going to take over the world with all these little Right. Little floating nanotech cells. Yeah, there's know? there's the self there's the self replicating idea as well, and we're gonna get into that uh, as we keep going here. Yeah, but uh, and the, but there are other as there are other aspects though too that are useful. So for instance, in a in a uh, in a wire, right in a metal wire, there are defects and there are impurities and things in the metal that make transmission across the wire. Um, it makes transmission be not as efficient as it could be. And that's what we call like resistance losses. Right. Mm -hmm. So, uh, for example, when a, uh, when you pass electricity through a wire and the wire heats up, um, that's because of some inherent resistance to the flow of electrons through the wire. Right. That makes right? sense. So it's like why you but, lose charge with the longer wire than with exactly, the shelf, right? exactly. But if we could control at the nanoscale, the building of that wire to make it perfect, to make there be no defects, then we might be able to start operating at, at peak efficiency. Right? Okay. There, there are thermodynamic reasons why we can't hit a hundred percent efficiency in any system, but still like, you know, these, the changes or the savings in terms of energy transmission and heat loss and whatever would not be negligible there. They would be significant, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and there, and there, so there's all kinds of other reasons, right? Uh, another big area where, there have been a lot of benefits from nanotech has been in solar energy, right? Making a solar panel that can take in uh, photons and convert them to electrons is, uh, again, requires very perfect, very carefully controlled materials. And if we could control those materials the way that they're built and grown at the uh, nanoscale, then we can uh, come up with all kinds of you know, more efficient ways to capture uh, light and harvest it. And that's why solar panels have gone from being something like, you know, one to two percent efficient to uh, 15 to 20 to uh, close to the theoretical limit of efficiency. Gotcha. You know, so so there are a lot of applications. Now, the first nanomaterials that we really worked on were it's kind of funny on the uh, having worked in the field. I know that some of this on the Wikipedia page isn't necessarily true. You don't because say because there, because there, there are materials there are materials that we consider nanomaterials today that uh, would not have been considered that in the past. Gotcha. So one material that is uh, has properties and aspects at the nanoscale that now we can use for different applications are clay clays, um, right? So think like and I'm and I'm talking like the like pottery clay that you're thinking of right now. Okay. Um, the reason that clay or even makeup, whatever, any kind of clay, uh, spreadable solid like that, the reason why clays can be spread that way is because they're composed of one to two nanometer wide layers of silicon oxide and aluminum oxide uh, with water in between them. Oh, cool. So we found that we can uh, pull apart those individual layers and use them to build things. Right. So there's some researchers. That's kind of what I did for my Ph.D., in fact, um, or one part of it anyways. But so there are researchers trying to, like, break apart those individual layers of clay to use it for solar panels or to use it for uh, heat shielding on um, heat shielding on uh, spaceships 
because there's all kinds of interesting properties you get to at the uh, nanoscale for things like heat transmission or energy transmission. Just with the sil- with like the silica in the clay or whatever. It's it's literally because of the size of the material. Okay. So uh, heat, like when heat transfers through a hot surface, like a hot solid, what's actually happening is heat is vibrating the molecules in the solid. But since it's a solid and not a liquid or a gas, uh, this, this, the atoms are really close to each other. And so it creates something like a... Uh, almost like a, like a wave, like a seismic wave, right? So imagine you have all these crystals uh, connected to each other in a lattice in like a big structure. And so you apply heat to the one on the end. And so you start to vibrate that one on the end up and down. Mm-hmm. What's going to happen to the ones at the other end? Well, they're going to start vibrating too. And that vibration, like, like imagine you're holding like a wire taut on either end and you start to wave one end of the wire. Right. Then right? it's going to go to the other. Yeah. The same va- wave vibration happens in solid materials. And uh, for heat, that wave is known as a phonon, P-H-O-N-O-N. And it is a it is the quanta, the quantum mechanical waveform of heat. Um, and so in certain nanomaterials, the, the distance that the phonon has to travel like the literal, like the distance of the wire is so small that you can't get certain waves. So you actually can't transport heat um, through the material or you can't transport the same amount of heat through the material. Because it's like too big of a wave to fit on that small of a. Exactly. Okay. Like I said, I'm here to I'm here to uh, d- d- dumb it down for people. <laughs> <laughs> well, so so a, a good way of thinking about it is like. Um, I guess a good way of thinking about it is like, uh, think about, uh, an ocean wave, yeah. right? If you're at the bottom of the ocean, the size of a wave that would have to be like, if you're th- okay, let's, let's take an example. The top of the ocean is, uh, has waves going on and all the time, right? Right. You have to be close to the surface though, to know that a wave is happening. Right. Right. That makes yeah. Because if you're underwater, you're not going to notice it. Yeah. No, because there's just too much water. Mm-hmm. Right. You're mm-hmm. not seeing any movement. The same thing happens. The same uh, effect in general can be said to happen when the size of the thing is too small. <laughs> right. So imagine you only had a puddle of water. Right. You can't have if you have a puddle of uh, like a pool of water that's three feet deep. You can only have a wave. At most, that has an amplitude of three feet. Right. So if you have a six-foot wave in there, it's just not going to fit. It can't fit, right? Right. It can't happen. It's physically impossible. The same thing, then, is true of waves at the nanoscale, where if you have something that's one to two nanometers thick or less, then you can't get a phonon wave that might be on the order of five to ten atoms uh, wide. Okay. Right? So, it, but it leads to really cool, it really leads to really cool effects. And that's why now we're starting to look at this for um, use on like space, uh, space stations or space shuttles, right? Yeah, because that's what I could, would think based on what you were just saying is like, yeah, the thinner, you want the thinnest but strongest material, right? For the space you want shuttle. The, yeah. Well, besides strongest, you want the thinnest but most resistant to heat and radiation, mm-hmm. right? 
So, uh, so it's, it's really, it's really fascinating and there's all kinds of weird crap that happens at the nanoscale. And I, and I don't want to make it seem like we aren't actually getting close to like nano machines. Maybe nano machines is a little bit of a stretch, but there is some really cool stuff going on in some labs out there. Uh, there's one, one technique that people have made is called a, uh, a chemical, what the hell do they call it? Like a chemical, uh, like a vice, like a chemical vice or a chemical, um, I guess, gripper, but that's not really what they call it. They call it something more eloquent than that. But, uh, like, basically, like, twe- oh, tweezers. They call it chemical tweezers. Wow. That's, right? that's kind of cool if you think about it. And what it is is it's uh, it's literally an organic molecule that if you heat it up, it opens, and if you cool it down, it shuts, like a, like a little hand, right? Mm-hmm. And so what you can do with that then is you can you can heat it up to open, and then you can do something, say, like stick a drug or a chemical inside of that uh, that grip. Right. And then close it with, with by cooling it off. And then you can do things like drug delivery. Right. I got you. Yeah. And so uh, there's all kinds of molecules that are um, they're called stimuli responsive. They, they respond to stimuli from external sources or something. Is that where you get that? Um uh, like I think I may have mentioned to you before was that the uh, the like the, the camp, light thing the light thing right yeah and I remember yeah. seeing that and that was years ago too so. yeah so one so one goal of this uh, technology is to like we said help cure cancer or or treat certain cancers or certain diseases and one one application that they think is potentially good for this is you find some way to. Uh, make a chemical, make a molecule or a surface or something that acts in such a way that it can take in drug and then it can release drug when you tell it to, right? So the same idea is that grip. Um, And so what some people have done is, for instance, you can make a surface with a bunch of polymer on it. And the polymer is is such that if it's it's in its normal state, the polymer kind of like squeezes really close to itself. Mm -hmm. So it kind of closes up. But if you shine a certain wavelength of light on it, it relaxes and it straightens out. Oh, then it releases the drug. Okay. Exactly. Now the the problem with that, though, is that light can't transport that deep through the body. (laughs) Right? Like light, like you don't shine a flashlight through your skin and it goes to your bones. And this was like Like, five, ten years ago that I remember reading about it. it So that was... Yeah, that was like the original idea. And so there are some things you can do, like you can use radio waves or... Uh, radiation even or whatever. But some of the most interesting ones that I've seen are the use of uh, magnetic fields. Oh, cool. So you make a magnetic nanoparticle. And so that's, that is what is known as a nanoparticle. So basically what that is, is it's, that's literally you make a metal, you make a metal oxide uh, form really small uh, shapes, like small balls, basically, right? Big, really small spheres. And then you can coat the sphere in polymer or chemical or whatever that, again, has that, like, capture and release uh, method by shining light or heating it up or applying a magnetic field or whatever. Gotcha. And the benefit of using a, a magnetic particle for that, um, besides the fact that a lot of magnetic, like, iron is at least kind of non-toxic to the body, um, although, you know, in certain forms at least... The, the Too good much of point it's bad, but the, yeah. Yeah. The good point about using then those magnetic nanoparticles is, for instance, you can collect them again, or you can tell them where to go in the body by applying a magnetic field to direct them. 
So this is reminding me of the that little game that you had as a kid with the face and the little iron particles, it's, and you had the yes, magnetic yeah, pen, yeah, yeah. and you would just 100%. move them around in there. So it's it almost reminds me of the same thing. I thought you were going to say uh, Magneto in the first X Men movie when <laughs> that that security guard is is taking a poop or whatever, and Mystique comes in and like kisses him and then shoots him full of iron. And so then when she when he goes to Magneto, he's like, "Oh, you have iron in your blood." And then he like rips the iron out of the guy's body. That's kind of cool though. <laughs> That's a little bit more graphic version than what I was thinking. Fuck yeah! <laughs> but it totally could happen, right? Like right. this is what happens when I drink beer, TJ. I like it. <laughs> I, get, I get gruesome and weird. Guys, um, we, we have to tell Chris to drink beer more often. <laughs> no. So especially so on yeah. Mad Scientist podcast, this is great. Oh, hilarious. <laughs> so, anyways, um, save so, puzzles. <laughs> <laughs> so. We have a couple of, so we have a couple of technologies that can kind of get close to that idea of. Yeah, so you brought up some cool examples on the medical side, and you mentioned a little bit of the stuff for the space side, but what were you specifically working on, like, when you were doing your PhD? I know you were working on basically, like, a big nanoscale air filter for the whole world, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was my goal before, uh, before uh, before I started this awesome freaking podcast yo now my goal is to become bill nye yeah. um Ooh. the uh yeah i know it's a hard it's there it's a big lab coat to fill how about mr wizard um, all right mr wizard that's fine uh, so you're probably too young i am i am you always bring up mr wizard i've never seen it i surely uh, should check it out though i'm only 37 i'm not that old yet <laughs> the um okay so my my PhD work, like you said, was on the capture and conversion of carbon dioxide to sellable products. And it kind of started from an idea when I was in undergrad where if you look at the history of technology and the way that it's changed, the only time that technology has really changed for the better in in for the better what i mean is for the betterment of mankind is when there is a way to make money off of it true unfortunately and so it's kind of like it's kind of like tricking um tricking a, a corporation or, or a government or something to do something that ultimately may not be in its best interest but will be better for everyone else by you. showing it a way that it is in its best interest so, for example, like coal companies and petrochemical companies didn't want to accept the fact of climate change for a long time, right? And there are still some in the United States government who don't want <laughs> to accept it because because um, they're making a lot of money. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, they're they're making a lot of money, and and this is a this is a direct threat to their uh, livelihood. You know, I mean, imagine if imagine if we found out that I don't know pizza was causing cancer. Right. Like and we were like, well, we got to we got to ban pizza. You know, Papa John's would be even more odious than he is now. Well, it was like um, just just today and you know, today's Thursday before Thanksgiving in 2017 for anybody that's listening later on in the future. Yeah. But um, they just came out with the article and I think I saw it on Twitter about how the sugar industry was funding studies into the health benefits of sugar or harms of sugar 
But then oh, they, yeah. they canceled the study because they're like, shit, we're finding out that this causes heart disease. This oh, causes fuck, this potentially cancer. So let's just bury that because we're going to lose a lot of money if we <laughs> if we yeah, say I sugar's mean, well, bad for you. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's this it's the story of um, it's the continued story of people are people think that since individuals generally have the best interest of other individuals at heart that a big group of them together must also have the best interest of everyone at heart. But, right, so, like, okay, uh, one guy making sugar on his farm wouldn't be making sugar if he thought it could kill people. Right. Right? And so a, a thousand people in a corporation making sugar and selling it, certainly, if anything, that means that there's more chances for them to be a whistleblower or a good person or someone in there, Right. And unfortunately, if, I used to think that, and now it's it's a, it's well, a very different ballgame, unfortunately. The thing is, that's the thing, though, is that, unfortunately, the history of humankind uh, has shown us that when people get together in big groups, it just gets easier to make bad decisions. Because you can pass the buck around, right? Oh, well, I'm not going to say anything about, you know, cigarettes causing cancer. Like, I'm just a guy growing tobacco. I don't want to get screwed over. You know what I mean? They may or may um, not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shut up, TJ. <laughs> you know, so, uh, so yeah. I'm keeping Any, my anyways. fingers crossed that there's still hope for bad decisions I made in my there's younger st- years. St- there's still hope. There's still hope. <laughs> so, the, uh, the, so to, to get back on the, yeah. the train, I guess, here of this actual so, story. So, what you were trying to do basically is figure out a way to take the carbon dioxide and make it into something that people could sell or use or something. Exactly. Right? Basically. Exactly. Because right now, Carbon dioxide is a it's a it's a it's garbage, right? It's like you make um, you make a bunch of garbage. You can't capture it. You can't use it for anything. It's useless pretty much. And so um, you just get rid of it. You just let it fly away. Right. But we were trying to tell or we are trying to tell corporations that have been operating like this since the dawn of chemicals that well, actually, now that thing that you used to just be throwing away, um, we're going to tax you for it or you need to capture it. And capturing stuff like that costs money. Right. Right? And so if there was some way to offset that cost, for instance, by selling uh, carbon dioxide as a sellable chemical product like ethanol or like acetic acid or like, um, you know, glucose or any number of, of higher carbon number compounds, mm-hmm. then, um, then the debate over climate change goes away because suddenly who cares about the environmental benefits we're, we can make a lot of money here by selling garbage to people. Yeah. They're seeing dollar signs <laughs> that, that exactly. Now exactly, you reminded right? me. So, so my analogies, you know, dumbing it down is remember the back to the future where he had in the second one where he put the garbage in the car and that fueled it instead of the nuclear mm-hmm. energy later on. That's yep. what it kind of reminds me of is like, okay, it goes from nuclear energy to, um, to garbage powered, you know, in the future. Yeah. I mean, of, and that's, well, that's the, that's the problem with, um, yeah, that's the problem with a lot of chemistry or with a lot of, with a lot of, uh, I guess you could say the, con- the, pro- the corporations or the, what's the word I'm looking for? Like the industries, I guess, that make their money by converting, um, some feedstock into a usable product plus some waste, mm-hmm. right? Usually, uh, like the company doesn't want to have to deal with that waste in any useful way. And so that's kind of where governments have historically always stepped in, right? I mean, tanneries, 
um, tanneries in like New York City or France or Paris, France or uh, London in the UK, um, tanneries were uh, destroying those cities. Right. You know, like the tanning of the tanning industry was creating these hazardous bio waste sites in the middle of these major metropolises. And, um, you know, the government had to step in and say, well, actually, we're going to we're going to come up with some way to do sanitation. And that's leather, right? t- leather tanneries, not human yeah. tanneries, just for the record. Yes, that's leather tanneries, <laughs> not human tanneries. We're not uh, we're not talking about Ed Gein or anything. <laughs> right. But um, yeah. So, OK. So anyways, my goal was to find a very. So we currently have the technology to capture all of the carbon dioxide that is released from power plants. Okay. Really? We currently, we've had that technology for about 10 years. But they won't use it because they can't monetize it. Well the, well, the problem is that it's very costly and it's very, uh, yeah, it's energy intensive, mm-hmm. right? So you can think of a, what's a good analogy, I suppose? Um, okay. You know those things that you put into your car to soak up bad smells, like those silica gel beads? Yeah. Okay, that's basically what I worked on, was those silica gel beads. Oh, cool. Um, but very specific ones for carbon dioxide. Those silica gels, they will capture the bad smell from your car kind of just by sitting out in the open, right? But once you are done with those, what do you do with them? Well, I would throw them out, but yeah. You throw them out. Usually. Everyone does. You Everyone throws them out, right? Or you um, leave them under your car and forget about them. <laughs> well, yeah, or you just leave them there, right? Until they until they come back. Um, that's not that's not good if the stuff that you're making is extremely expensive, right? So nanomaterials are super expensive because um, you have to do all kinds of chemistry to make them, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So like uh, the materials I worked on, some of the metals I had to use to make my materials. We're in the hundred dollars per gram range. Um, well, you're not even then, adding in like the research and development uh, side. No, you know? I'm exactly. I'm not even talking about after you make them. This is just buying the, the feedstock from somewhere. Yeah. Um, once you make them, they're hitting uh, hundreds of dollars a gram. You know, so um, expensive, <laughs> really expensive. Right. So the so the, the the challenge then is to create some way to capture stuff from the air that can be uh reused mm-hmm. right and so the way to reuse it would be to uh first you capture the carbon dioxide and you do that uh quickly so that you know you don't have to like stop production of energy every hour to remove this uh this pot of stuff or whatever right right you want to be able to, for it to be a continuous process, and then you want to be able to clean off the surface somehow so that you can capture CO2 again. So I, I guess a good analogy, again, would be like an air filter in your apartment or your house, right? Every year, you should be cleaning those air filters. Um, and you, when you, you do remember. it, you, <laughs> yeah, did you remember to clean yours? I remembered mine. So. You, uh, you know, and so what you do is you, you pull it out and you clean the filter off by just like wiping a paper towel on it or whatever. Um, and then you stick it back in or you buy a new one or whatever. Right. Uh, the same exact thing has to happen for big filters on industrial plants. Okay. We have to find some way to clean them. And so what we were working on was using, um, using different types of chemicals on materials with very high surface areas to capture 
carbon dioxide gas in a way that was it would happen um, immediately from air. So just like with those silica beads in your car. Mm -hmm. So they didn't have to do anything. They didn't have to apply heat or anything. They would just let uh, the air from the plant, you know, the, the gas. It's called flue gas, the gas that comes out of the chimney flue. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. um, you would just let that pass through a membrane or a filter with our solid in it and it would capture it. Um, and it would let everything else pass through, but capture the CO2. And then what you do is you, uh, you heat that stuff up the filter to remove the CO2 to a reservoir somewhere. And then you stick the filter back in and so oh. you can recycle it over and so over. It's like self-cleaning. That's kind of cool. Yeah, exactly. That's really and, cool. can't, and the thing is that, uh, there's all kinds of interesting ways to do it. You don't have to use a solid material like I was proposing. Um, one really cool proposal that I've seen is actually, uh, I think it was from the university of Hawaii. Um, one proposal was to use bacteria to, uh, capture the CO2 in like a, uh, almost like a bio refinery that was attached to uh, a power plant, right? Cause bacteria uses CO2 to, that's what it, it takes in CO2 to survive. Right. So it's quite interesting. Um, so, Okay, so what did I work on specifically to do to make that happen? Well, just like with any kind of filter or sponge or whatever, you need a lot of surface area to capture uh, stuff, right? Because you need some surface for that chemical to stick on, mm -hmm. right? So what I worked on were these materials called metal organic frameworks, um, also known as MOFs, M-O-F-S, um, and uh, layered silicates and layered silicates aren't that interesting. Moths are, I think moths are very interesting. Um, Tell me about what. So what moths are like are they're like uh, connects. Okay. Yeah. Right. They're just like connects. So imagine with a connects set, you have the center pieces, which are those like circles. Mm -hmm. right? You have like a white circle, a yellow circle, a red one, whatever. And then you have the rods, those uh, long pieces that connect the centers together. Right. In my research, those center pieces, kind of like the str uh, not the struts, I guess, like the nodes, um, those nodes would be metal, uh, metal compounds like uh, magnesium or cobalt mm -hmm. or selenium or whatever. And the rods would be some organic species that has uh, ends that react with the metal. OK, that right? makes sense. And so what we would do is you would put. Um, a whole bunch of the metal centers and a whole bunch of the rods together in a reactor. And based on the geometry, like the number of bonds and the direction of the bonds that the metal um, center could actually have and the type of uh, ligand, the type of rod piece that you put in, mm -hmm. you can try to get different geometries of resulting crystal. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. <clears throat> so based on, you know, how hot you do it or, or cold or, or what chemicals you apply to it, then that'll change the structure just a little bit, right? Absolutely. Basically. And also, and also like if you, so, uh, so like imagine if you put in a, if you put in a metal that could only have two bonds on it, then how many, then what kind of shape could you make? I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. 
As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts. Right, probably a line, I would think. A rod. You yeah, can only make a rod. Straight, yeah. Absolutely. What if you did one with uh, three connections? Uh, some kind of spoke, I would think. Right? Sudden, suddenly you can make a pyramid. Right, right. Suddenly you can make a pyramid. Okay. How about four? Now you can make a cube and pyramids and all kinds. Right, so... Sorry, I was thinking 2D. On, yeah. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. It's okay. Um, so depending on the metal that you choose and the number of points of contact it can make with the, with the organic compound... You can get all kinds of different things. And what's really cool is you can actually change that organic compound to have different applications or different uh, properties, right? So if you pick a, if you pick a rod that is, um, if you pick a rod that changes shape upon heating or cooling, suddenly you can make a drug delivery uh, item, right? Mm -hmm. Suddenly you might be able to make something that can, that can be uh, responsive to heat. And so uh, maybe you can, you know, you can put it in the body and have it flow down to a tumor and then you heat it up and it releases drug. And do they if always eat- act the same way? Like, like if you have cobalt, will it always act the same way if you do the same application to it? Or does that vary uh, too? It's kind of a crapshoot because the, the thing is that this is all determined by what's known as uh, chemical or I guess thermodynamic equilibrium. So in other words, um, like if you put cobalt, if you, okay, if you put cobalt and uh, like cobalt nitrate, uh, hexahydrate, let's say into a solution of, um, organic solvent, right? Mm -hmm. It will, if you heat it up or you add the right modifiers like sodium or, uh, extra hydrogen molecules or whatever, it will form uh, cobalt, cobalt uh, six plus is what the metal organic transition molecule is called. Okay. And that is, um, they're more, it's more complicated than those connect things I was kind of talking about. But basically that's, it's three cobalt stacked on top of each other that can take on um, 10 bonds, right? That is that will always form if you treat it exactly the same way. But the problem is that you're the, the treating it the exactly the same way is the problem. <laughs> I got, so it's hard to get those exact. Yeah. Like imagine that day you didn't clean your reactor exactly the right amount it. of time. So I, right? so I'll, I'll translate it for me as like in cooking terms, you know, it's like you can make pizza dough the same two days in a row and based on humidity you know, and, you know, exactly. yeast, the yeast you choose, the flour you use, all that stuff. It's all, I mean, kind of similar, um, actually, because it makes a similar bonds. So no, it's, <laughs> uh, it's, ex- it's actually like, it's extremely similar. Like chemistry is very similar to cooking in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, it's the only chemistry I ever understood. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it is chemistry, right? Right. So, uh, so yeah, man. So that's, so kind of, um, that's kind of what I worked on. And so the interesting thing with that is the surface area of the materials I worked on, um, like 
imagine uh, the size of a football field, like the surface area that a football field takes on. Um, the materials I worked on, that amount of surface was available in like one gram of material. Wow, that's amazing. And and more too, like uh, you know, a couple of football fields, or you know, it's you can really get to very high surfaces. So I think the highest ever reported for a metal organic framework is in the ballpark of three to 6,000 meters squared per gram. Wow. So that's a lot. Yeah. So (laughs) six. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's intense. Right. And so what that translates to then is a lot of, um, what that translates then to is a lot of active sites, a lot of, a lot of metal surface or a lot of solid surface for, um, a chemical reaction to occur or a molecule to get trapped and stuck, or a molecule to chemically react even. So, right? so one one kind of question, but when you are opening up these sites, are the sites already there, and you're just kind of unblocking them? Or We're building them. So you're creating new ones. Yeah, so... So does that get mo- weaker because you're kind of screwing with the natural... Whoo, what a good fucking question, man. Okay. I remembered it from yesterday. It's so good. <laughs> this, okay, this, uh, don't you tell them, TJ, don't you tell breaking them. Breaking the fourth wall, breaking the fourth wall. This, um, <laughs> this, okay, this kind of translates to the whole idea that I, I, I alluded to earlier of a top-down versus a bottom-up approach, right? If you're doing it as a bottom-up approach, so you're, like, building a the material yeah. atom by atom like Legos, mm-hmm. then you're designing the nanomaterial yourself. And so you can kind of guess what surface area you might get, but it doesn't always work out that way because of impurities and because of um, problems with with uh, reactions and stuff, right? Yeah. Um, and some some uh, some states of matter aren't possible, um, aren't just aren't possible thermodynamically on the surface of the Earth, right? Or, or under the conditions of the Earth, right? I mean. That's why, for instance, when we find um, there was some there was some like ancient ruler's sword that they found and they were like, oh, it contains an alloy that shouldn't be possible on Earth. And so they think that it probably came from an asteroid or something. Okay, right. Like um, that's why we can say stuff like that. Right. (laughs) Or, or, you know, um, that's that's why we study asteroids, in fact. Yeah, because the Earth so, the Earth hasn't changed that. I mean, it's changed, but not that much. You know? No, not that much. <laughs> right. Yeah, and so and so there's and so like in the lab, like you can think, um, you can use carbon as a good example. Carbon on the Earth surface is um, just like black soot, right? Um, whatever, it's like ash or uh, coal or whatever. Mm-hmm. But under the right conditions of pressure and temperature, it can make a diamond. Right. Right. It's the same molecule, but it's just different phases, different forms of that molecule. Um, or not molecule per se. It's the same atom, but it's different arrangements that that atom can take. Right. That makes sense. And so the, so the same thing is true for, uh, for almost every, um, every atom or every molecule. Right. So, uh, so for instance, uh, copper, uh, copper oxide has all kinds of different forms that it can take different crystal structures. And and what that literally means is um, the way that the copper and oxygen are arranged next to each other can change. And and those can have different properties, right? So uh, some of them might be magnetic. Some of them might be uh, brittle. Some of them might be very strong. Some Mm -hmm. might be very shiny. Um, It all depends on the crystal structure. 
And, but it's, but it's very hard to predict those properties, uh, just from like, okay, if I put these next to each other in this way, I'll have this type of property. That makes you know, sense. like our, our chemistry, our, our knowledge of atoms and, and crystals, isn't that good yet? So it's very hard to predict. Which is so now, funny that you say that considering how much we know, you know? <laughs> like, right. Well, like that's the thing. It's amazing we, to we, me. We do know quite a bit, but, um, but the, let's. I want to come back to that idea actually yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and talk about what makes it so hard to work at the nanoscale. Okay. Um, but so, we, so let's get back to the bottom up approach versus top down. Okay. Do you want to scrap that part so, or do you want to just, no, no, oh, that's okay. perfect. That's totally good. Yeah, no. Um, you want to just chop it up. <laughs> we're keeping it in. We're keeping it all in. Do it live. We're doing it live. The bot. <laughs> so bottom up would be like, uh, like I said, you're building like Lego. Right. Top down again is that whole idea of like exploding Mount Rushmore mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and hoping for what you get. When you do something in a top down approach, you can um, get defects and problems like what you were saying. Which makes sense. So, so for example, um, with metal, one really good natural example of capturing carbon dioxide is is limestone, calcium carbonate. Um, and what happens naturally? is calcium oxide uh, takes in CO2 just from natural absorption and becomes converted from calcium oxide to calcium carbonate. And then um, that calcium carbonate then is used. um, It's just all over the damn place. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so uh, limestone would be a really good, like, so a lot of, a lot of researchers when we first started thinking of ways to capture CO2, were like, well, Nature uses calcium oxide. Let's use that as well, right? And so people tried to make calcium oxide in the lab, and then when they, and even if they synthesized it from a bottom-up approach, they would make it. But what they found was if you capture carbon dioxide on that surface and then you reheat the calcium oxide to remove the CO2, so you're uh, capturing carbon dioxide and then it's becoming calcium carbonate. You're then heating the calcium carbonate to go back to carbon or calcium oxide. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think I'm following it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so let's, let's just start again. Slow. You got calcium oxide. Wait, I'm not originally. that slow. Right? No, 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 no. I'm, I'm not saying kidding. for you, bro. You got, you got, uh, you got calcium oxide originally. Right. And you add CO2 to it and it becomes calcium carbonate. Okay. That makes sense. You can then heat up the calcium carbonate to release the CO2 and get back calcium oxide. Okay, totally makes sense. Okay, the surface area of the calcium oxide goes down a lot after reheating. After you add it and then subtract it again. Yeah. Okay. So in the first case, you might be able to capture, like, let's say for every atom of calcium, you capture one uh, atom of carbon dioxide. Right. Or one molecule of carbon dioxide. Sorry. Yeah. Um, the second time around, you might only be able to capture for every two uh, atoms of calcium. You capture one molecule of carbon dioxide. So you're, you're getting 50 percent less. Do they, and as you keep going, it'll get worse and worse and worse. Do they think that that surface ba- area comes off when the carbon dioxide is being removed from it? What's what's actually literally happening as as far as we can tell and this was actually a project that I worked on quite a bit in my lab. Um, the farthest, as, or actually my lab mate Zalong uh, was working on this for a long time. The, um, 
as far as we can tell, what actually happens is the surface, uh, it becomes, it almost melts. And so the surface is, uh, the area, the number of active calcium oxide sites for capture to happen Mm -hmm. goes down. And so, um, you can think like it goes from being kind of like a sponge at the beginning with a lot of open space for carbon dioxide to sit in. And then you reheat it and that sponge slowly becomes just a solid cube. Okay. So it kind of and is so sealing the melting the holes. Exactly. Together. So the okay. whole thing gets sealed. And so then you can no longer capture anything on it. Wow. Um, yeah. And it's a huge problem because calcium oxide is the most efficient. Um, if we could use calcium oxide, we would, we would not be talking about even the problem. So, the, so just to give a little bit of, uh, perspective here for listeners um the the cutoff industrially for what is considered economically viable for capturing carbon dioxide is that for every um gram of material that you use to capture you should be able to suck up 1.5 millimoles of carbon dioxide okay so industry so, so the units don't really matter but the industry cutoff is 1.5 millimoles per gram. That's considered like the gold standard. If you can get above that, you're doing really good. Right? Right. Calcium oxide naturally on the first time you capture has an efficiency of uh, 14 millimoles per gram. Wow. <laughs> the second time it's around two. The third time it's around 0.1. <laughs> and then wow, the really drops time, down. <laughs> it drops down a lot. Even and from one to two, it sounds like. Yeah. And there's, and the, I mean, those numbers are kind of hand wavy, but it, it is, it's, it's that precipitous, right? So you like, can't just put a big block of limestone on top of these chimneys. No, again, no, no. It it's day. like, yeah, no, it's like after the first, after the first time it's garbage, uh, you know, it, it really, it stops being useful. And so, um, so it's, it's like, a, it's a big problem, man. I mean, it's it's really it's a lot more fascinating than I think people give credit to. It's a lot harder of a nut to crack than um, than we like to think about. But really, there are some really fascinating there's some really fascinating techniques that are being used to try to fix even calcium oxide. There's a, some really interesting things that are being used to try to fix it. So if you add different uh, metals or different things to the surface, you can actually stop that. Um, you can stop that effect that occurs where the surface area goes down. Yeah, you're like putting a stent so, in almost, right? It, almost, yeah. yeah, very similar to that. Um, very, very similar to that actually. And so you can kind of you can kind of recover some of it, right? But still, it's not it's still not as good as just using uh, like a zeolite, which is another type of um, another type of rock that has uh, nanopores, is very small pores, right? Um, and channels and stuff. So. So yeah, man, that's what I worked on. Tons, um, tons of different applications for this cool tech where people, you know, people are just reading about it on the news. The average person, I would say, you know, oh, they're, they're just going to think, you know, sci-fi, you know, any sci-fi movie rather than, you know, there's actual some legitimate applications there that could really help out a lot of people. Oh, absolutely. So, so let's, let's get back to that question you had actually, uh, just before we, we end here, uh, this first part of this super smash up episode one of three <laughs> one of three super smash up portions um the the problem with working at the nanoscale with like that top like top down is easy at this point we have all kinds of interesting ways to do that to blow and stuff actually up. yesterday 
Yeah, yesterday the story that uh, made me stop recording because I just like my body was like, get this lung out of your skin. <laughs> like I just had to cough a billion times, I guess. Um, which was frustrating. When I got off, I stopped coughing immediately. That's because you're inhaling too much of the nanotech. So that yeah, <laughs> at work, <laughs> so that it's all the, it's all it's all the little powder things. Um, you have a bunch of little robots in you. Well, you know, okay, actually, actually, this is that's actually a really a really interesting point. What's really scary with working with nanomaterials is we don't like. There's all these all this talk about using them for like bio biological applications and stuff, right? Mm-hmm. The timeline to get a technology from the lab to actually like out in hospitals being applied, even like even for it to be applied really in special circumstances is like 15 years, give or take. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. It it takes and it does. It makes perfect sense. I'm thinking from just a drug perspective, right? How long those take to go from research to, you know, people don't realize how long that actually takes either. No, it takes a long time. But the same uh, the same material that's being given all this scrutiny for use in hospitals and stuff, it might it might become deployed in in industrial uh, facilities and stuff, or even in like home uh, home goods, in you know five years. Oh wow! So yeah, so there's a huge disparity in like if it's being specifically used for a drug or for pharmaceutical applications or things. Um, or like topical use, whatever, then it gets a lot of scrutiny. But if it's just something that you might come in contact with, but we don't really know what it's going to do to you, <laughs> there's like not that much. Like there is scrutiny, of course, but it's it's not nearly as much, right? Yeah, that makes sense. And, and so uh, one really scary aspect of working with these materials is you don't really know what danger they pose to you or to anyone, right? It's it's like a it's a pretty okay bet to think that if you mix um, a non toxic metal like magnesium together with a non toxic organic compound like citric acid, that you're the crystal you're gonna make, um, which actually that crystal doesn't form I don't think, but whatever. Um, if it did, patent pending, patent pending. <laughs> Uh, it's called Mad Scientist One. Now I've officially <laughs> declared it. Uh, it's in the research literature. Oh, I can't, can't wait to go the back day I on hear it that on Twitter. On Twitter news feed. Oh. Mad Scientist One has just been invented. <laughs> Mad Scientist One super cancer causing crystal like cancer curing. Um, cancer curing. <laughs> oh yeah, we hope so. Um, the so the, even though you might think that those two things together are safe, you really don't know. Right. Yeah. Like you don't know. And it always goes back um, to just the basic of like you're messing with the natural kind of <laughs> way things are designed, you know, which I know we everybody does anyway, right? But No, but but no, but I think I think it is an important point though that it's it's kind of um to, not not to get as philosophical right. as the way you put it, I would say. But like these things have never like there were crystals that I made that had never existed in nature before. You know what I mean? Like we made stuff that at least as far as we know on the surface of the earth never formed. Right. And if some of that got on my lab notebook and like, which I mean, thank God I never had a spill or anything horrible happen. But you know, like if some of that stuff got out into the air or whatever and I breathed it in and it's suddenly giving me super cancer, I won't know. 
You know what I mean? And, because... the, and the flip side is it could be giving you superpowers and you don't know. Yeah. You know well, I, I mean? Like, know. So you I mean, really don't. <laughs> There's both sides I mean, of the coin. But, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I get what the bigger picture is, is that this yeah. technology is great. But to your point, like, remember with the um, how they were trying to switch to the mercury light bulbs for a while? And then they found out people were dropping them. And breaking them, yeah. Then all the mercury was getting out, and people were getting, you know, potentially could get sick from it. I mean, look at look at look at uh, right after we discovered uh, radium, right? Mm-hmm. We we're using it in nail polish and shit, yeah. right? <laughs> like it's ridiculous. Uh, we were using, um, you know, asbestos. We thought asbestos was totally safe. I guess it still um, works for insulation purposes, right? Or whatever. It's still, it's, it's mean, still like one of the best insulations we have. It was just. You know what I mean? Kill you if you go to sand it. <laughs> but actually, but even even think about even think about the uh, mesothelioma and asbestos. That's horrible. That that isn't a chemical effect. That's a physical effect. That is uh, these tiny fibers getting into your lung and scarring your lungs. Right. That's how. I, yeah. Like pokes holes in it or something. Right. Yeah. yeah. We're talking about making things that are even smaller than asbestos fibers. That's insane. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, what'll happen if we inhale those by accident? And we won't even know we're inhaling. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it won't. It won't. Uh, it won't hurt or anything, right? So, so, anyways, it's a so, it's a really scary. Um, it can't, you know, not to not to tell people that you should be afraid of nanotechnology or anything, but uh, you know, if if this show has taught you anything, I would hope it's taught you that sometimes um, we need to before we ask if we can, we need to ask, you know, should should we? we yeah. <laughs> then the the <laughs> other know. side that I just thought of is like, is there potential to use this in a negative way? Oh, like yeah. bioterrorism type of stuff. You know what I mean? Of course there is. I mean, so um, of course, right? We can get into I that mean, later, I'm, but if you want to, but right. yeah, I mean, it's uh, because I worked in the field there. I would. I'm gonna. I'm not. I'm not going to. I'm gonna. I'm gonna shy away from this. I think. Yeah. Because. Um, well, you don't want to give people want, tips, you know? <laughs> no, you know I, mean? I don't want to give any ideas or anything. Um, you know, I mean, not. I don't that makes it sound like I think I'm on. That makes it sound like I think I'm some fucking important scientist or something. Uh, you know what I mean? You like, are. <laughs> I, I think I'm fine. I don't think anyone's going to be making weapons with my little sponges. You never know, um, though, right? People. You never know, but yeah, no. There's definitely there's definitely uh, negative applications for every science, right? So. But to your I mean, point, actually, this and this is one of the things I've always picked up from your show is that this is why we have to keep and I'll politicize a little bit, but keep the funding going for the science side, and just. Keep that in mind when we're making uh, political decisions, shall we say. Well, also that's a pretty safe way of putting it, right? <laughs> right? Yeah, that sounds fine. Um, yeah. And actually, uh, one aspect of nanotech that I think has always played up in popular culture that is like that negative side is the idea of self-replicating nanobots. I'm not even sure where the idea of self-replication came from originally, but the basic idea is to design a robot that is like the size of a cell. And so can, um, just by the way it's designed, take in enough energy to actually self-propel itself and has the ability to find atoms in nature that it needs to break apart and build other copies of itself. So, like creating a robotic bacteria or something, right? Yeah, is that even possible? Um, I mean, it's theoretically possible. Wow. Yeah, I mean, why not, right? But we're nowhere near that. I mean, we don't even know how a regular cell works. Right. 
right? Like we have no fuck. We have some idea um, in terms of like there are there are a few areas of science more murky and more um, more questionable at the moment than the transitions between um, I would say the transition between psychology and uh, brain chemistry. That's one area where uh, that is very murky. And I think that's one that maybe will continue to be murky for quite some time. Mm -hmm. And the other one is the transition between biochemistry and cellular biology. That transition, I don't think people realize how huge of a transition it is, right? Um, Because it, I guess I would say the universe, like I literally mean the universe now. I don't just mean like the universe is like a concept. I mean the, the astronomical universe, um, universes and, uh, galaxies and star systems and whatever are still very mysterious to us, but they generally operate on pretty well understood, uh, rules, right? They operate on Newtonian physics um, Are we getting into the where? rules? No, I'm just <laughs> no, no, no. We're not getting into not that's those Forrest. rules. Forrest is gonna Forrest is gonna stick his head out from under my bed and be like, "Yo, Chris, the uh, the rules." Um, love love that Forrest. We cannot um, get through an episode without mentioning them at least three times. No, of course we can. No, they're phenomenal. They're great guys. Listen to Astonishing Legends, people. Anyway. Um, the like the but the the but the looking at big stuff. And looking like figuring out what's going on at, at a really big scale is a lot easier than looking at small stuff. <laughs> and I think both both hurt my head in different ways. And it's funny that you even yeah. that you brought that <laughs> up because when you were talking about you know the these nanoparticles having a surface area of multiple football fields, you know that that's one perspective. And then I'm thinking of you know how Scott Kelly from the astronaut the ISS was saying how little Earth looked, right? You know, yeah. so it's like the whole complete opposite perspective and both are equally mind-blowing um oh dude there's there's a really there's a really phenomenal website that's like uh oh i forget what it's called now if if a listener finds it posted on the facebook page or send it to me on twitter or something but it's basically like it's a website that has like a slider where you can go from um like all the way to like the biggest thing we know all the way to the smallest thing I've seen the that version on like at the universal scale where you have the Earth and then it shows the Earth compared to the Sun, then the Sun compared to the next bigger star. You know, okay, yeah. and then so, it keeps so going up one, and up and up that way. This one, this one does something similar, but it keeps going all the way down to like, okay, an atom, okay, an electron. Okay, oh, a, a cool. Quark. Okay, <laughs> you know what I it's mean. Like it goes um, the other way too. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's fascinating because I mean, um, I think. Uh, so what is it now? Like each of us is like a meter is like a, let's say two meters tall approximately. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's tall. Two meters is tall, but you know, let's say approximately two meters tall. That's what, like six Um, feet. Give or take. Yeah. It's like, that's like three point. That's like, yeah, it's like 6.5 somewhere around. there, Right. Um, the, uh, the earth's diameter is, um, the earth's diameter is uh, 12,000 kilometers, right? So that means it's, um, that means that if we took, um, like, I'm trying to think of a good way to explain this. If we're each two meters tall, 
then approximately a thousand, the earth is approximately, um, 10,000, no, like 5,000 times, uh, as big as we are. Okay. Right. That makes the diameter sense. is like 5,000 times. Um, that would be a difference between one and, uh, five times 10 to the fourth power. Okay. Okay. A nanomaterial is one times 10 to the minus ninth power. Oh, so it goes the other way even more. Yeah. Wow. You're significantly crazy. More. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, think right? about how so, many of those nanoparticles make up like your fingernail. You know what I mean? Or I like mean, something little, you know? There are, there are billions. I, I think there's a quote that says something like there are, there are more atoms in a grain of sand than there are stars in the known universe. Wow. Um, well, hey, that's you know, job we, security for you, right? So. Yeah, there is. That is, you know, so we're at, we're actually uh, we're actually pretty pretty big, um, <laughs> you know, on the scale of things, we're actually pretty big. Um, so, so the other the other thing, quickly before we end here, that I wanted to say is that question of how do we actually like what can we actually see? How do we know any of this shit's really there? Yeah, good question. Right. Um, for a long time, we didn't know that electrons actually existed. Like we, we, we knew like, like we, we knew to the point where we had a lot of evidence that they existed and we had a lot of, we had a lot of experiments that proved that something that was approximately massless and had a negative, uh, an opposite charge, at least compared to a proton existed in the atom. Right. Mm. But we had never seen an electron. I mean, just like we had never really seen atom, um, until, like the nineties. <laughs> wow. You know, we had, we had never really seen uh, one before. And, um, even now I think the, like maybe like the eighties, I want to say, I want to say like the early eighties was the first time that we had a microscope that was possible of actually being able to, to look at stuff at the atomic level. Right. Of like, and even then we're just getting a, it's not like we're looking, we're not getting an image of something at the atomic level. We're getting a representation of the atomic level based on, um, it's called, uh, what is it called? Like atomic force microscopy or something where it's basically like, uh, you're measuring the force that the atom exerts on a surface. And so then that's what's being translated to like an image map in 3D. Is that where like you get the scanning electron microscopes almost where it it doesn't actually show you the atom. It just shows you the printout of where the atom should be, basically. Well, so this is, this is even, like, so no, so it, it's similar. A scanning electron microscope, um, which is capable of seeing at the level of cells and things that we're talking about is like 10,000 times to 100,000 times magnification. Um, for I think that's as far atom, as I got in bio. <laughs> okay. Yeah. For, for an atom itself, we're talking. Um, you need to start using like tunneling or transmission electron microscopy. And that's even, even TEM is uh, not that good at, at seeing that stuff. Uh, a tunneling uh, microscope is what you would need to use. And that is what I'm talking about there where you can actually look at an atom. But again, that's like. But you're um, talking for nanotech, even smaller than that, right? So do you have just no, a super no, 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 high no, tech? No, no, no. <laughs> yeah. no, no, no. For, so for nanotech, we're talking SEM and TEM. Okay. We're talking okay. that level. So that's the thing. Like we're uh, we're getting a lot. So 
SEM listeners scanning electron microscope, um, TEM tunneling electron microscope. What that is, what both of those use is instead of using photons or light to look at a surface, they use electrons. So basically you shoot an electron at a surface and then you have a collector that measures the electron as it bounces back. And based on the way those electrons bounce back, you can make an image. Um, and I can put some pictures of SEM uh, photos and stuff that I've taken or TM ones up on the website. Even I mean, um, they're no, they're no, uh, they're not a lot. They're not great to look at. They're basically just look like big things of rock. <laughs> but they're cool. They're kind of cool. Um, yeah. So the so the issue is that it's um, so. Can you actually hard. see these particles, or do you just see the reactions? No, no. So you so that's the thing. You can't see the. I guess there's a there might be a way to see the reaction, but that wouldn't really be useful necessarily in most cases. Mm -hmm. And also, these reactions happen at very high uh, temperatures and pressures, so you would need to be able to look inside of a reaction vessel without letting all the pressure and temperature out. Right, or burning yeah, which, burning what you're which, using to to measure to look, with. Yeah, yeah <laughs> which which would be very difficult. Um, what some people do is they will let the reaction only go to a certain point and then stop it and then look at time frames. So we actually did that where we could see our crystals grow um, kind of generally, right? So like, okay, if you let them in there for an hour, you just see like a bunch of particles. If you let it in there for a day, you start to see some crystal form. If you let it in there for a week, you see big agglomerates of junk. Yeah, that makes right? sense. So you can extrapolate um, that over a month, it's going to be X, X big. It'll based be on this how big, size, right, and yeah, right. and, and it, it won't be any good for use, or it will be, or whatever. But um, but yeah, man, it's like we're getting better at it, but it's still a it's still a challenge, and it's still really expensive. Those those machines, a TEM is a, a TEM takes up a whole room. You know, I mean, I remember um, you know late you know late nineties when I was in high school, those things were like huge and super expensive. So I can't even imagine what they are now. You know? Yeah. Well, that's the thing. Like, what's cool is as computers get better, um, our ability to look and actually measure at that scale is getting better and better as well. But um, but you know, we're at this point, we're still. We're not we're we're closer to what Feynman wanted of this idea where we could build things atom by atom. And actually there was a lab at Northeastern where I was at, um, the lab of Kate Zemer, um, Dr. Kate Zemer, who her work was what's known as uh, ultra high vacuum uh, laser deposition. And literally what she was doing was shooting individual atoms at a surface to build a crystal from the ground up. Oh, cool. So like a 3D printer almost. but Almost like a 3D printer <laughs> with, so cool. uh, with atoms. Yeah. It was amazing. And um, and so she was using it for all kinds of cool applications. Like, uh, for instance, I think the one that really, um, that really kind of uh, sold me on wanting to work with her um, initially. So when you, when you start a PhD program, you have to pick some advisors you might want to work mm -hmm. for. And so her work was, was some of the work that had brought me actually to Northeastern initially. And so, um, what, what, one of the things that she was working on was like, uh, uh something that people want to start making are surfaces that, uh, if you push on them with your feet, you can actually generate current. And so you can like have a city powered by uh, sidewalks. Oh, cool. And it's just from the pre the potential energy and the, the force of you pushing on this crystal 
that you cause it to deform and it creates a magnetic uh, charge or a magnetic field that then creates a charge that then can be collected somehow. That's really neat. Um, so that gets back to kind of full circle to what you were saying originally is that if you can, you know, monetize some of this technology to, to just monetize everyday things that are happening anyway, like walking or like, like you were saying for your studies, the carbon dioxide's going out either way. You might as well figure out a way to, a, a clean it. it up, but also maybe monetize. You know, use it Absolutely. use it for something good. Hundred percent, man. Yeah. So that's so that's kind of where uh, that's kind of where nanotech is right now. I would say you are probably going to see. I would expect to start seeing Nobel prizes for people. You've already started to see them. Um, the people that discovered graphene, uh, I think, already have one. Uh, the people that developed the uh, the people that developed the uh, the tunneling microscopes, uh, they won a Nobel Prize for that work. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if you don't see uh, the name of uh, of Yagi. Yagi is a uh, Doctor Yagi is a scientist who uh, pretty much wrote the book on metal organic frameworks. Um, they're extremely important. They're becoming extremely interesting to research, um, and I would say he's. He would be up there in my mind with some of the most important scientists of the uh, of this of this century, for sure. As it's starting out here, um, so you know, there's a lot of big a lot of big things happening that I think are going to be really fascinating. I, I, I'm I'm really looking forward to being an old man, not only because I'll get to be like a total jackass, <laughs> but also because I'm really excited to see where this technology goes. Yeah, you know, it'll be really neat, um, like to see like what sure. our what our kids end up having. Yeah, 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 man, it's gonna be weird, you know. But it, but you know, so, it's people like you that are p- paving the way for that. So hopefully, we'll uh, get some good stuff. And don't sell yourself short. You might you might have that Nobel Prize sooner or later. My small my small piece of uh, oh, there's no way. But my my small piece. I don't know how much listen. money those people get. By the way, can I just can I just say as an aside? <laughs> uh, I think they get a million dollars. I know. I didn't realize you get that much for a Nobel. Prize. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's not even like where you're making most of your right, right, money, anyways. Right. They I don't know. care. Like, but I think it's. Fu- I never knew you even got paid. I thought it was just like a yeah. prestigious award. I didn't get. No, 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 no. You get a million dollars. There are still there are still math problems out there that if you can solve them, you win, you win a million or more. Wow. You know, yeah, there's there's all kinds of ones out there. It's kind of funny. I had the guy, uh, the guy that taught me, the guy that tried to teach me pre-calculus, um, but I was garbage at it in undergrad. Really? Um, That's kind of ironic. <laughs> I was really bad at, I was, okay, I'm really bad at calculus. I am very good, I would say, at differential equations. So for those of you that know what those things are, that means something. For those of you that don't, um it's kind of like being really bad at like shapes, but being really good at trigonometry. Like that's, that that's, actually I makes sense because the only math I could do was geometry. So really see, so yeah, yeah and like none of the other math. That's why I went into communications. So <laughs> I was like, so, uh, which major has the least amount of math? <laughs> you know? Honestly, honestly, I think, I think when we're teaching math, we focus too much on, uh, on algebra and not enough on because math at the highest levels, math is just like pattern recognition. Right. And applying patterns to interesting things like there's algebra in there. And so it's chemistry, too, right? I mean, oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah. All of nature follows set patterns kind of. Right. So but uh, now, now we're getting yeah, to the man, rules I, again. Here we go. <laughs> now we're getting to the rules. Now. Now Forrest is really going to come. It's probably a good time to wrap it up us. then. Right. 
Well, dear listeners, that is the end of this episode of the Mad Scientist Podcast. I have been your host, Chris Cogswell, here with TJ Cunahan from Pints and Puzzles. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on, man. You know, it's so it's always so much fun when um when I'm like knee deep into writing an episode and I'm like, man, this would be so much easier. You know, with the science ones, it's it's hard to tell a story of like just straight science. And like with the weird things, it's a little bit easier. But with this stuff, it's 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 challenging. So I'm happy you came. Yeah, well, on. thanks for having me. It's a, it, for it's, sure. It's, been, it's, it's kind it's, of fun to have to be able to actually ask you the questions live rather than you know looking looking like a crazy <laughs> nut job with my earphones in talking to myself. So right. Well, uh, well, thank you again for coming on, listeners. Thank you so much for listening, for supporting the show, and uh, and I'll be back next week with a roundtable, and then we'll be getting back to our normal. Uh, regularly scheduled programming of full episodes and roundtables. Thank you so much for listening. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.